On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, lots of people in this country, private sector people, workers, business owners, whatever, have been hammered by what's been going on in the last number of weeks. Is it time for public sector employees to be chipping in financially? We'll discuss that one. Also, have the circumstances that we find ourselves in, unexpected of course, but have the circumstances changed our thought about online learning, e-learning. It's been a bone of contention in this province. Is that changing? And we'll talk with Jamie Campbell. Opening day of the baseball season was supposed to be Thursday. The Jays were supposed to throw the first pitch against the Red Sox on Thursday. Didn't happen. So we'll talk some fun old Blue Jays games to fill the void in the meantime. Oh, and if you need one more thing, if you need some entertainment, we'll try and help you out with What are the shows that you can watch online right now to fill the hours and hours and hours that you have that uh, you're just scrambling and there's only so much garbage on the regular television to fill your days? Well, we'll help you out. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. As I've said, I think almost every night when we get started, these are unprecedented times or pretty close to unprecedented times. I suppose some people who lived through the war or if there are still anybody around who lived through the Great Depression, perhaps not so unprecedented. But for the rest of us, unprecedented times. We're hearing that in the past couple of weeks, something like 2 million Canadians have either lost their job or lost significant income because of what's been going on, jobs shutting down, businesses closing for all this stuff. Uh, There was a survey this week that said 40% of Canadians know someone or is connected to someone who has been affected financially. But there seems to be a bit of an asterisk on that one. All or almost all of those who are affected seemingly financially, business-wise, job-wise by this, are in the private sector. Small businesses, employees of larger companies, entrepreneurs, these are the people who suddenly are finding themselves in a real tight spot. I have heard of almost no, if any, public employees being let go. And... Look, on the one hand, that's fantastic. Nobody wants to see anyone lose their job, public sector, private sector, whatever. We don't want to see anybody get hurt. On the other hand, we are now relying on massive government bailout packages to keep everybody afloat. Billions and billions of dollars that are being poured out that are eventually going to add to our deficit and then to our debt and then are going to probably come back in the form of taxes that everybody's going to have to pay. So a question... The private sector has obviously paid a price here unintentionally. Is it time for the public sector, the folks in the public sector, to make some kind of sacrifice too? Is it time for folks in the public sector to take a reduction in pay until this crisis is over? Let me bring in Jasmine Pickle, who is with the the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, who joins us now. Jasmine, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, Tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems right now that public sector employees almost across Canada, are largely exempt from the challenges that we're facing. Am I wrong? Uh, It would definitely depend on what type of government employee you're talking about. I mean, you also have, let's keep in mind, a lot of frontline workers in the medical sector that I don't think anyone would argue that they've they've got it easy throughout this. So it definitely would depend on what type of employee you're talking about. Um, but certainly, you know, on, on social media, I've seen a lot of chatter about teachers. Just I think they're top of mind because they've just gone through these lengthy 
negotiations, contract negotiations since uh, August, I believe, of last year. And, uh, you know, they really came to the fore before Corona kind of took over the news cycle. So I think they're top of mind. And right now there are a lot of certainly Ontarians saying, well, you know, they just fought so hard against e-learning. Um, and now, you know, they're they're at home uh, being paid uh, still. Well, there's a lot of people in the private sector, you know, uh, people who don't work for government at home that aren't getting paid. Um, and so there have been a lot of calls online, but I think it actually might surprise you that um, from the taxpayers' uh, point of view, we're not calling for any sort of knee-jerk reaction. There have been people saying, you know, teachers shouldn't be paid if they're sitting at home, but we're not calling for anything of the sort. From our perspective, you know, we're all in this together. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's really hard. These are unprecedented times. We've never been through something like this before. We don't know how long it's going to go on. Um, and so I, from our perspective, you know, we're all in this together. Government employees, though, you know, they should know that things aren't going to go back to normal. It's not going to be business as usual once we finally get over this thing, um, because the government's not bringing in the sort of revenue that it had anticipated. And it's certainly spending a lot more on healthcare and different taxation measures. So it certainly won't be business as usual. And I think everyone's going to have to, you know, share this, um, share this pain together. Um, but certainly right now is not the time for some sort of knee-jerk reaction in terms of policy to, you know, kick government workers off of, off of payroll. I think that might just make things worse. Uh, okay. A, a number of things you said, and it's fascinating, and I appreciate your, your thoughts on this and the, the differ, different opinion. The first thing is I'm shocked, quite honestly, that politicians across the board have not all volunteered as leaders in our communities, provinces, country, that they have not volunteered to say, look, to help out since we're spending so much money, we're going to shave some percentage off our pay to show goodwill. I- I'm very surprised that hasn't happened. I mean, I wish I could share in my surprise with you. I, I, I think it should happen. Uh, well, maybe that's what I should have said. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be shocked, but was hoping. <laughs> giving them a lot of credit here. But, um, and I mean, I don't envy their position. I think it would be very difficult to be a, a decision maker at a time when there's very little data available. But we have seen some shocking headlines, like uh, federally, I believe MPs are set to get a raise soon, which is just, you know, hard to stomach for a lot of uh, Canadians who are have lost their jobs and, you know, are waiting in multiple hours lineups to get you know, a phone call in for EI. Um, So there are things like that that are just shocking. Um, You know, there are things like that that they should cancel, including uh, actually as the Taxpayers Federation, we called on, you know, stop this hike. Uh, There's a hike coming down the pike for uh, the carbon tax. Um, It's set to go up very shortly, I believe on April 1st. Um, And so we've called on Trudeau, you know, just stop this. Like like more taxation, more expense is the last thing that uh, Canadians need right now. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about, well, what's going on now with the economy, with these massive debts and deficits that we're building, important. I mean, they're, they're for important bailouts. We don't want people to be going under and starving and, you know, we, we have to so- somehow find a way to help. But with this massive amount of money that's being poured out and with the private sector being hammered by what's been going on, restaurants closing and those people out of work and on and on and on, haven't seen anything asking for the public sector to contribute in a financial way. 
And that's my position on this. So we're talking with Jasmine Pickle from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Now, just to be clear, uh, and Jasmine, you said it before the break, and I just want to be clear. I, I don't want anybody to be laid off. I'm not asking for cuts to the public sector so people don't have work. But in the midst of what's been going on, we got the Sunshine List put out, I think it was a week ago or so, with the Ontarians only who are making now $100,000. There were 167,000 public employees, just provincial public employees, making $100,000. And again, in these desperate times, I'm looking saying, is there no expectation or no thought that perhaps for the two months or whatever that we're all locked up in the business, can't, or the economy can't work, that something could be done that they could contribute? So again, Scott, I would have answered very differently. You know, I've been on your show before, so yeah. it's probably no surprise to you that um, I have uh, for years called on um, somewhat of a reality check for government employees in this province who on average earn uh, a, over 10% premium to their non-governmental counterparts. So people working in similar lines of work outside of government, um, you know, they retire sooner, they earn more, um, they have better pensions and benefits. Um, so, you know, under this crisis scenario, I really just, all that we're calling on the government to do right now is just to keep people safe and support the healthcare sector, you know, provide relief where it's needed to businesses and people. Um, but, uh, you know, when the... I think once this is all over, we should really learn some lessons from this, which is, uh, you know, let's save money for a rainy day. Um, Ontario has been spending uh, way beyond its means for decades now, which has landed us in a very precarious financial situation uh, with over $350 billion worth of debt. Um, you know, we would have been in a much better position to respond to this, but also to recover from this, which is equally as important um, you know, had we uh, spent money, um, you know, in a more prudent manner. And what was really shocking was uh, to hear the prime minister say, you know, it's because of our responsible decisions that we're able to respond um, to this crisis in the way that we have. They have not been making responsible decisions financially up until this point. Um, you know, they've plunged us uh, with massive deficits every year, including, you know, the year of the election. Um, they said that they were the last election. They were supposed to have the deficit back down to, you know, a balanced budget, but they were about $20 billion off. And that was without the COVID times, without any sort of, you know, blockades happening. So, um, you know, this really just underscores the need for our governments to spend prudently um, in the good times to save for a rainy day. What do you anticipate, and I think I know the answer to this, what do you anticipate the public response is going to be to the poor, whatever the first public service union is whose contract is coming up, who takes the position that we're going to go on strike if we don't get an increase of this or that after we come out of this situation? Well, like I said, I think there are a lot of different types of government workers. You know, people might have a little bit more sympathy for nurses at the moment than than other uh, government workers, for example. However, um, I think that it would be a big uh, strategic error. We saw a big backlash, for example, uh, an Ontario Teachers Union, the OSSTF, the Secondary uh, School Teachers Federation, um, recently sent out a memo to its members um, about e-learning and not to participate uh, and encourage that because it might be problematic down the line. Um, and there were a lot of uh, teachers, actually, members of that union that went to the media. This was reported by uh, The Sun, I believe, 
um, saying, you know, that's wrong. Like, we're just all, like, you know, these teachers genuinely care about their students and want to help them through this crisis. Um, you know, they don't want to, to sit at home. Like, they, they you know, want to help. It's not by choice. Helpful. It's not by choice. Exactly. But for their unions to send out this memo was just so tone deaf and, and just really out there and it was not acceptable. It was met with a lot of public backlash. Um, and I have to say, you know, I'm not an education expert, but from a value for taxation perspective, I really do have concerns that the whole e-learning issue was very heavily politicized in, um, throughout this negotiation. Um, you know, I don't think that um, protecting teachers' jobs is a sufficient reason to oppose e-learning. But at the same, and at the same time, I don't think saving money is a sufficient reason to impose e-learning as a requirement. But unfortunately, um, you know, e-learning could have been a really great tool, and I think it needs to be explored further. Like. It, it could be a very beneficial educational tool. And I think that's something that, you know, should have been properly explored um, and unfortunately wasn't because it was such a political hot button issue. But, you know, maybe this is a really good tool for students and, and parents and frankly, taxpayers um, that we should explore further down the line. So anytime I think, you know, these public sector unions um want to come out asking for pay raises, that sort of thing, that's just not going to be tolerated. We're all in this together. And like you pointed out, the private sector is really hurting right now. I think, you know, it's only fair uh, to acknowledge that we're all in this together and that government employees are also going to have to, you know, bear the brunt of some of this. Well, I got to run, but just there's one other point that comes out of this, and and that is a maybe a bit of a lesson in private public sector. Every person who right now their private business is hurting the restaurants that have closed, whatever, have risked their money and have tried to build build a business and are now really hurting. And so we go, oh, well or, you know, maybe, or something to that effect. We want to help them. But meanwhile, if they really succeed and make millions of dollars and do really well, we have a lot of people go tax the buggers. And it's like, wait a second. No, they've risked everything. And so if they do well, they do well. This is a perfect example of how that plays out. Jasmine, listen, I would love to keep chatting. Love to have you. Uh, Thanks for taking the time today. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. Just remember that the next time some business person does well. They could have been on one of the people right now who has no business because of what's happening. They risked it and they they won. They did well. But it could have easily gone the other way. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Seems like an awful long time ago that our main concern in this province was the teachers' job actions. That's what we are all talking about and arguing about and debating. It's like that was two weeks ago. <laughs> it seems a lot longer than that, doesn't it? But we were talking about it last segment, it came up and we're going to talk about it now. If you turn your mind back to those moments, those times, one of the key issues that was being fought over vigorously, people taking hard sides on this one, was e-learning, online learning. Province wanted students to take a few classes, a couple, few classes online, and the teachers union said, no, this is not a good method of learning. It wasn't equitable. We're not going to do it. We're not going to stand for this. Well, now that everybody's been stuck in their homes for a week, two weeks, and many parents have been wanting to keep their kids doing something to keep their brains active, not just staring at the TV, I'm guessing that some, maybe many of these parents have pointed their kids towards the computer and found something on there that is educational and said, do it. Which raises the question, have circumstances out of our control, unexpected circumstances changed our opinion 
of this controversial issue. Dr. Paul Bennett is an educator. He's a researcher. He's a commentator. He is more than anything an education expert. Uh, he, Among other things, he's the lead at Schoolhouse Consulting, which has an excellent website. You can go look up all kinds of stuff, schoolhouseconsulting.ca. He joins us now. Dr. Bennett, thanks for doing this today. Good evening, Scott. So I was reading the Globe and Mail, I think it was today, maybe yesterday, and there was a story with a headline that says this, the education world has been turned upside down, online learning may reshape the classroom. Uh, you're quoted in this story, I assume then you would agree with that statement? I was honored to be chosen as an honored with the headline. That's exactly the quote that I gave the Globe. And it's not every day you wake up and you look in the newspaper and you say, my goodness, my quotation is in the headlines. I really do believe that we've had some earth-shaking changes that have um, shaken up the world, turned us all on end, and the school system is no different than any other system having to find its way in a radically changed world where people are essentially quarantined at home, where the old rules have seemed to have disappeared, and where school systems are kind of on the sidelines. And what's really happened is parents um, have taken matters into their own hands. And since they are responsible for the children now, for the most part, they've actually taken on the responsibility of trying to find things to keep them engaged and educate them. So we are in an ironic situation where those who we entrust with educating students are kind of playing catch-up. And it's reflected on uh, chat rooms, on Twitter. I'll give you an example. Um, it's interesting. The author of that article that you just quoted is Caroline, Caroline Alfonso of the Globe and Mail. And she put a question up today on, as a follow-up. Are you standing down for now, or have you started to provide some instruction to your students? And she asked that of teachers. And it's amazing the reaction she got very much divided, divided response. Some attacked her for the phrasing of her question, uh, teachers standing down. Others have completely agreed with her. Parents and others uh, are definitely of the opinion that um, something more could be done and should be done. Um, but some amazing things are going on, uh, Scott, that I'm learning uh, each day. Would you like me to give you the range of things that yes, are Yes, please, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you've got, say, a school board like the Waterloo Region District School Board. They've taken the approach of um, being friendly and open and engaging and using the government's website, uh, which is Learn at Home. They've developed their own um, Waterloo Region Learn at Home. And they've been very clear that they would like to help parents and teachers through this very difficult time. And the way it's worded on their website is that they are going to be as supportive as possible of um, children and to help the parents. And they want to take the pressure off parents, but on the other hand, they're reaching out. And they've assured that every one of their teachers is going to reach out and contact a student sometime this week, and that next week there'll be some more formal plans. But that's, that's what the most generous response was that I found. If you take the Toronto District School Board, they were directed to do nothing um, in the interim. If you look at the Renfrew District School Board last week, and this is interesting, right after the minister posted the uh, Learn at Home, the Renfrew teachers got a strange directive saying they're not expected to do anything um, and um, they should just wait for further instructions. Same in the Ottawa-Carlton District School Board where people have sent me copies of the, of the directives. 
But what is happening out there is that, um, well, one school board even directed their teachers to have nothing to do with Zoom and um, distributed a memo, the dangers of Zoom. So um, what's happening is um, that people are taking, uh, as parents, responsible parents, are taking matters into their own hands. And they've gotten ahead of the school boards. I think they grossly underestimated the desire after being captive for so long of parents and um, and students and teachers to want to be given something to do with the kids. And I think where this becomes very interesting is when we get back from all this, when normalcy of some kind returns and the, the, the boards that are still negotiating... I, you know, they had the parents' support largely in their hands. Polls were showing parents were supporting the teachers in their stance against e-learning. I'm guessing, I'm wondering if a lot of those parents' position has not softened and, softened and if the teachers' support for that is not gone. We're in a really turbulent time where loyalties are being tested and where people are changing their minds. I wrote a story in the National Post about a week ago, and it said that uh, when it was in-person teaching, versus online learning. Most people would favor in-person teaching. But what happens when in-person teaching is gone and schools keep being um, dismissed and uh, for extended periods of time? And then you hear that uh, it's going to be indefinitely that school is not going to be resuming. And you know from talking to educators and leaders in the, uh, in the uh, school boards and that it's likely to be suspended for another month or two, um, you begin to realize, hey, someone had better come up with a plan. So I think what's happened is school boards, are, uh, school districts, and superintendents in particular are finding themselves under incredible pressure to come up with something. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about online learning, e-learning, whatever you want to call it. We're chatting with... Dr. Paul Bennett, who is a an author, an educator, a professor, a policy researcher, he's basically Mr. Education Consultant and an expert here. And uh, Paul, I, I, I interrupted you just before the break there. You were talking about how much pressure the school administrators and those in the education system are right now, are under trying to figure out what to do in the meantime while everybody's stuck at home. All leaders are under pressure and they're all being tested. And school superintendents are no different and their, their senior staff. Um, there's a real change underway, and I've described this as e-learning by default. And it's not something that they wished for, but it's happened, and now they're trying to come to terms with it. Um, that's why you get so many different responses from different levels in the school system. I have to say this, that your Minister of Education, uh, Stephen Lecce, he really surprised them by posting the Learn at Home last week. And that's part of the problem. There's a perceived and perhaps real lack of consultation. And by posting all of that and saying it was phase one, he set up expectations from parents that they would be something more substantive coming. And um, I think the, um, the senior administration and most of the boards were caught completely off guard, or if they they weren't, they're just not prepared. Um, I wrote a piece about a, three weeks ago saying that I thought that what would happen would be um, everyone would scramble around and patch together whatever they could to meet the immediate needs. 
And I think that's being borne out. One of the things that I've heard often in this discussion, and I'm sure it's still being said right now, is that you can't have e-learning, you can't have online learning, because not every student in the school system has access to a computer or has access to the internet at home. And therefore, if you go ahead with this one, you're leaving some people behind. And I guarantee you that that's in fact true, that not every kid is going to have access to that equipment. The question becomes, though, it's a very small number, I'm quite confident. Do you never go ahead with something until 100% of everybody has equal access, or is that holding everybody back? Scott, I think that applied when you had universal access to in-person schooling, and everyone was guaranteed a reasonable level of education. In this new world that we seem to have been thrust into, um, there's nothing, and um, you have to almost create something again. So my response to that would be, let's establish a universal uh, e-learning program to um, be critical at this time, and let's work almost simultaneously on trying to address those inequities. You know, the simplest thing to do would be to issue um, technological uh, devices um, to those students that are lacking the resources. But I think too often we use the excuse that if everyone doesn't have it, we can't do it. Um, what we know is that virtually every student has uh, a smartphone. Uh, that's, that's given. And uh, surely we can work up something that would let them, uh, let them be accessed. I, I, just, I firmly believe that most children today are online most of the time especially the last two or three weeks. Well, and my follow-up question would be that if you have, let's say you have two or three students in a class that for whatever reason don't, they're new to Canada financially, they're disadvantaged, whatever, is there a reason that they could not be phoned? You talked about that they're going to be phoning people. They couldn't be phoned and followed up, and maybe they're not on the online lesson with everybody else, but they get the same lesson for an hour with that teacher later. Well, we have Google Classroom where they, most of them have access in a lot of the boards that have Google uh, apps for education. But your answer, your question is a good one. In fact, that's what they're doing. They're phoning and they're um, extending a hand of uh, friendship and support to the uh, students. And they are asking if they have access to technology. But it's almost like they're building a case for not going ahead. Uh, instead of saying, we're going forward with e-learning, that's the wave of the immediate future, and we want everyone to be on it. Uh, what are the obstacles you face? <laughs> They're actually asking, do you have the technology to make this work? Uh, it's a different type of question. Um, but I think there's, um, you know, there's, there's a residue from the bitter labor disputes of the last two years. Uh, no question about it. You, and you actually referred to that at the outset. And this is it's awfully hard. I think if you've been opposed and vigorously opposed and campaigning against, say, uh, four courses of e-learning in secondary school and then two and you still don't want two, to see all of um, secondary education being online has got to be a tremendous shock. No wonder there's, as I've described it as a culture shock. Uh, is hard to get used to. Dr. Paul Bennett, uh, go look up his stuff at schoolhouseconsulting.ca. It's a great website, lots of stuff there. Dr. Bennett, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Uh, one other thing I'll throw out there. If the, and I mean, I'm not trying to be difficult, but if we're still having teachers, school boards, teachers unions that are saying we can't do this, 
I, I put the question forward saying, okay, let's say that, because we're not going back after two weeks, that's what Doug Ford has said. Let's say that kids are out for now four weeks or six weeks. Well, we can either do e-learning now or we run classes all through July and August and there's no summer vacation. Which is your preference? And I'm betting that I know which one the answer would be. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today is opening day in baseball. Well, it would have been opening day in baseball. We're just missing one thing, um, baseball. Other than that, though, hey, it's opening day. It's spring. It's a new season. Everyone's optimistic, except, uh, yeah, no baseball. Right now, probably... The telecast would have just been wrapping up after the Blue Jays finished their opener against the Boston Red Sox. Uh, The Blue Jays starting pitcher, Ryu, would have been uh, presently discussing the no-hitter he just threw. Uh, Vlad Guerrero would be talking about tying George Bell's record of three home runs on opening day. Right? All that stuff would have happened. And leading that discussion would have been Jamie Campbell, who, well, theoretically is the host of Blue Jays Central on Sportsnet. Uh, Jamie joins us now. Jamie, how are you on opening day today? Can I correct you, Scott? Given that it's modern age baseball, we'd only be in the sixth inning right now. That's actually, well, except they right? have to throw three batters now, right? So it would have maybe <laughs> sped things up a bit. But when yes, I, you're when right. I was hearing you say all of that. I think is is Scott stuck in the seventies or something when when guys routinely threw complete games? It'd only be in the sixth inning. Yeah, you, no, you're absolutely right. This game it started at three thirty, and by the time you go through the pregame stuff, it would have been probably six. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so you're right. We're in the sixth inning, but you would have been between innings right now talking about what was happening in the fourth inning. Yes, Joe Siddle and I would have uh, ordered out by now, and we'd be having our dinner between updates. And uh, you're going to make me cry. I, I like It's one day into what the season should be, and I'm missing it already. Just before we get to that, I did, if people are wondering and they're saying, wait a second, we, didn't we just hear Jamie Campbell on the show? Yes, you did. You heard Jamie last week. We were talking about his lovely act that he was doing, calling around to all kinds of Blue Jay fans around the country who were missing baseball. You'll remember that now. Um, how many requests have you, have you now received? Well, I mean, thanks to you, uh, I have uh, received, I've, I'm well over 2,000. Wow. Yeah, well over. So um, Buck Martinez called me the other day, and he's been uh, kind enough to um, take some of that off my plate. And uh, as I've been telling people, what my hope is, is that at some point we get to a point where we can restart baseball games in some fashion, whether they're you know, multiple double headers and games played in front of nobody, but they're televised and I'll be too busy to be making phone calls to people because we've, we've received a, you know, a gift from the heavens and we're allowed to restart some of the things uh, that we're so accustomed to doing on a regular basis. Well, by that point, you may have to have the phone surgically removed from your ear <laughs> after all the calls well, you're you know making. what? I can just I can keep my lists and uh, make all those phone calls in the off season. Mm. But priority is to recover here and to to get past this uh, this pandemic. And you know, uh, it's not just Buck. Although Buck Martinez, that's great that he's jumping in. But I even saw on Twitter that Gord Ash picked up on your lead, the former GM of the Jays, and was uh, was taking questions and stuff on Twitter and jumping in. So you you started something. Yep, Gord Ash is. And um, if you love the Toronto Raptors and you follow Eric Smith on Twitter, he's now taking requests for phone conversations. 
Um, so well, it's a good uh, thing. I'm, it's a good I'm, thing you started. Well, I'm glad they're doing it. Right. It's uh, it's important at this time when we are all confined to our homes. Um, as I stated to you before, the phone is is often the best way to communicate with people that you can't be in front of. So it's uh, it's important that they give it a shot. All right. So assuming that I was um, more right than wrong in my intro, even though I think you're right and the game probably still would be going on. But assuming the game was over after opening day today, for people who uh, who tune in and watch you all the time, when that game ends, what would your schedule be? What would you be doing right now after your game? We would be going live into uh, um, Sportsnet Central, um, and then we would be probably taping a segment to do post-game, depending on the result, obviously, that would uh, uh, repeat throughout the evening on the highlight show, and then um, going home, getting a good night's sleep, and getting back into the routine for tomorrow's game. You don't get like a rub down on your throwing shoulder or something after <laughs> no, the game, do no. some icing or. No, you know, it's, it's the great thing about baseball is that, uh, is that it, it becomes such a, a routine. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny when I get deep into any season, I don't like interruptions to my routine unless, um, it's, it's necessary, important, and in some cases critical, you know, like if, uh, if one of my kids is sick and needs to go to the sure. hospital or whatever it might be. That's when life takes over, but otherwise I have a very, very standard daily procedure that, that, that I execute to be able to be prepared for every broadcast, um, be present for every broadcast, and, uh, and make sure I'm staying as healthy and as well-rested as possible. Well, there, there was no live baseball today, sadly, as we've well established now. One interesting thing that Major League Baseball, MLB.com, did was I think uh, for every team – there was one famous game that they replayed. You could could have gone on to MLB.com today and watched a game that was, for whatever reason, memorable for that team. I spent a good, well, I tuned in about the fifth inning, which is fine, because that's really when it became interesting, and watched the rest of the Jose Bautista bat flip game today, which, you know, (laughs) even though I've seen that seventh inning now a million times and I know the outcome, it's still stunningly entertaining what happened that day oh my goodness someday and maybe it will be me somebody was going to take the time to write an outstanding book yes about that game and maybe just that inning you could do a book on the seventh inning alone yep right so uh you know whoever it might be steven brunt or jeff blair or somebody takes up the cause and writes uh in in detail about just the seventh inning and, and all the characters that are involved, whether it's Aaron Sanchez or Russ Martin or Shin Su Chu or, or, or God bless him. Elvis Andrews. <laughs> kicked around that inning. I, um, I, I, yeah. I, I joked with my son the other day. I said, it's absolutely amazing that he's still under the employee of the Texas Rangers to this day. <laughs> Thank goodness he was not a Colombian soccer player because oh, I mean we remember what God. happened to the guy when after the World Cup a number of years ago. I mean it's uh, look I don't think it was fun for him to go back to Texas. Uh, the the other person I've suggested do it. There's a guy from from Hamilton, Sean Menard, who's a documentary filmmaker. He did the thing about the Expos reunion a few years ago. Did the mm-hmm. Carter effect. I said, look, there you go, seventh inning. You can do a whole documentary on it. People would watch yeah. that in a second. Oh, it was riveting, and I and I can still remember. When, when um, a guy that we, we all, if you love the Blue Jays, a guy that we historically dislike, Rukned Odor, yep. scampered across the plate after the ball ricocheted off Chu's bat, 
in the top of the inning, I still remember, because it was a deciding game, the pit in my stomach knowing that in the seventh inning, even though it was just a one-run lead, they'd just taken the lead. I'll never forget that. It's the same feeling I had, and I was fortunate enough to be there in the dying seconds of the gold medal hockey game in Vancouver when Zach Parise tied it up for the mm, Americans. Yep. It was the same feeling, and the difference there is we had to wander aimlessly like zombies around the concourse at the, the arena in Vancouver waiting for them to clear the ice and get overtime started. And 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 when when Odour crossed the, the plate and scored that go-ahead run, I mean, I just I felt sick to my stomach because – you know, in a tight situation like that with good, good late inning relievers scheduled to come out of the bullpen, it's not easy to get that run back. And the way it was scored was just was just disbelieving. I thought the pit of your stomach hollow was because of all the good beer being wasted by people chucking those cans onto that's the field. Though that's expensive that's beer. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so I got to believe, Jamie, now you've, you've followed baseball for a long time. You've worked in baseball for a long time. You have probably watched as many games as anyone, going back to the first ever game of the Blue Jays, I would guess that if I was to ask you, and I've not given, for those listening, I've not give, given Jamie any warning of this whatsoever, I would guess that would that game would be in your top five Blue Jays games of all time? Oh, easily. Oh, what else? What would be the other yeah. four then? What would be the other four games that you would put in Jamie Campbell's all-time Blue Jays games? Well, they'd all come for various reasons. So a year later, the um, the game against the Orioles, the wild card game. Encarnacion homer? When Encarnacion walked it off and uh, Buck Showalter um, refused to use the, the best closer in baseball at that time is certainly one of them. I mean, even though I was never there, but I watched it on TV, I always find the April 7th, 1977 original game almost like um, a myth, Mm. Um, even though I I saw it with my own eyes on TV and my father was there. I just absolutely revere all the characters that participated in it, whether whether they were Blue Jays or members of the White Sox. And, And one little thing that most people don't know and I love about that game is that the guy who threw the first pitch against the Blue Jays was mm-hmm. the brother of George Brett? Yes, he was Ken Brett. Yeah, which the late Ken Brett. Yeah, who later who later died, and and Ken Brett was George Brett's idol. In fact, the first two pitchers for the White Sox that day, uh, Brett, who was then relieved by a gentleman named Francisco Barrios, both passed away, and so too did the first baseman Jim Spencer of the White Sox. Hmm. Um, but we're getting deep there. Um, You know what's a really, really meaningful game to me is the third game of the 92 World Series, which was a brilliant game in its own right. Is that the Ed Sprague Uh, game? No, no, that was game two, and that was a hugely, hugely important game. Um, But this was the game where the Blue Jays pulled off a triple A. Oh, yes, yes. um, That in, in, in today's era would have actually been a triple play. Um, but I had bought a scalper ticket to that game for $175, and it placed me in the first row in right center field, basically hanging over the outfield wall. So when Devon White catches the baseball to start what should have been a triple play, he did so below me and about 10 feet to my right. So if we watch uh, the clip, will we see you? You can almost see me. I've I've looked at every picture imaginable of that catch, and and it's and I'm I'm out of frame, but uh, 
I mean, that was the first World Series game ever played outside of the United States. You had better tickets than us. We were in the second last row below the hotel windows and couldn't see Devon White make the catch. We had to just go by the sound and hear that he did something good. Oh, I can, you know what? I can picture exactly where you were. I can picture exactly where you were. All right, so that's four. I think that's four, right? So what would be game number five then, unless I'm counting wrong and lost track? Is there a fifth game that yeah, would jump into you know, your if list? I had time to stretch my memory, I would choose a game from the days when I got to do play-by-play um, because there were some games I walked out of, whether it was at the Rogers Center or at Yankee Stadium or Fenway Park, where you know I would just sort of get on the team bus or walk back to the hotel, depending on where we were, and say, that was one of the best games I've ever seen. and. Mm. You know, and if it was, I, I used to sit up on the broadcast booth, and for some reason, Oakland comes to mind. Oakland, people don't seem to like the Coliseum in Oakland. They think it's outdated. I love the place because it just, it reeks of World Series history to me because back when I was a wee boy, you could watch the World Series daytime broadcast, and they were often from Oakland because the A's were in mm-hmm. it for straight years. And I just love that place. And every time we'd go there when I was doing play-by-play, the sun was always shining. And um, I just remember walking out of that place and jumping on the bus back to the hotel in downtown San Francisco feeling great about whatever game was played that day. So That's uh, that's a great list. I'll tell you one other, and it's recent. I mean, there's a million. We could do this for hours. The other one recently that, uh, for whatever reason, it just it, it tickled me was the, the game probably – Three years ago, when uh, Edwin Encarnacion hit the three homers, had the hat trick, and people started yeah. throwing hats onto the field. Yeah. And somebody, I think it was um, Navarro, the other catcher, had to explain to him why the hats were coming down. And the look yep. on Ed- Edwin's face when he understood that, oh, there's a Canadian thing. I, I love that game. I love yep. that game. Well, let me give you two more then from, sure. from the magical 2015 season. The first start by the newly acquired David Price came against the Minnesota Twins, and he was utterly dominant. And And it was just one game, but at that moment you thought, there is nobody, nobody out there that's going to stop this team. You know, because Tulowitzki had already been acquired. Now Price shows up. You know, they went out and added a few bullpen arms like Mark Lowe. And Price shows up, the place is packed, and he just absolutely dominated the Minnesota Twins. And at that moment, I started thinking, like everybody else who follows this team, there is no way, given this lineup and this pitching staff, they're going to stop these guys. Hmm. And then later that year, as things were getting interesting, I can't remember the exact details, but the Blue Jays played a home game against the Yankees. And if I'm not mistaken, it was it was either tied late or they were down by one late. And Russ Martin hit a huge two or three run home run that propelled them to victory. And I think put them in first place to stay. I'd have to remember the, I'd have to actually look up the details, but that game sticks out as Russ Martin hit a massive home run. And I I don't mean by length. I mean, by, um, um, by situation. And I, I I should look up the details and to, to remember it vividly, but it it just, at the moment it was a moment of euphoria because it was Mm. such an important home run in a very critical time. You know what the beauty of this is? And again, we could do this for hours because I I wasn't thinking of this at all. And then you talk about, well, the massive home run that he hit in the moment and it spurred just something you said there, 
spurred me to think about the Junior Felix 10 RBI game at Fenway Park. Years, <laughs> like one, just one mention of something, and now probably me saying that probably makes you think of some other game that was there, the the Ernie Witt home run at, at Fenway Park or something. I mean, like, or wherever. I mean, it's just all these things. You could do this for hours. It's it's a, oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. Hey, just before we let you go, because it is opening day, we want you to, you know, not have to, well, you probably got phone calls to make still to people across the country, but um, just a little bit of news that we just heard about here, and uh, you're a guy who's also done all kinds of other sports. Curly Neal just died. I saw that earlier today, and that made me very sad because because that's when the Harlem Globetrotters were at their Oh, there you go. Yeah, way to go. Um, right. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, they... Lark Lemon. Yep, yeah, just before Geese Osby, but yeah, but that was... Uh, that was like he was he was for a team that I don't know how how relevant the Globetrotters are. They're still fun, but at, at back then they were they were on wide world sports. They were a, they were a big big deal. Yes, yes, you, yeah. You didn't want to miss them at that time. It was something else. Listen, we uh, we appreciate you coming back on, and we look forward though to next time hearing your voice. It being on TV, introducing a Jays game that they're actually playing, uh, and I know you're hoping that too. Jamie Campbell, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. All right, Scott. Nice to speak with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're all in the same situation right now. We have a lot of time on our hands. We have a lot of demand for things to pass the time. And I'm wondering what everybody else is doing and watching because heaven knows, like we're uh, we're all now diving through the depths of Netflix and Crave and Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and channels on the TV menu that we've never checked out before that we've got. I have that channel? Really? Honestly, you know what I've watched a few minutes of over the last few weeks? There's a channel where I have Kojiko. There's a channel in the list of Stingray music channels that plays kind of like yawny, relaxing music with with video images of nice nature scenes. (laughs) It's kind of like a nature version of the Christmas fireplace. I can't tell you. I don't really want to admit that I've watched a little bit of that, but I put that one on and that's how desperate we're getting. But I want to know what you are finding. What is the thing or things on TV that that is getting you through all these hours? There's got to be something. There's got to be some show that you have found that you're saying, man, either fantastic or I just blew 10 hours on some series, and boy, I wish I had that back. 905-645-3221 or star 9900 if you want to call in. We'd love to have you on and tell us about it. You can be your own TV critic, uh, or you can send me an email, radley at 900chml.com if there is a show that you are tied up in now or you're wanting to recommend. Ben, what is the, you got to be into something. What, what are you passing your time with when you're alone at home these days? It was a show I started back in 2017, actually, and I still haven't finished it. <laughs> how long is, how many, is this the Simpsons? No. How many seasons are there of this There's thing? There's five. I am, I have zero, absolutely zero excuse as to why I haven't finished it. Which is? Breaking Bad. Oh, Breaking Bad. Oh, man. How did you not finish Breaking Bad? The worst part about all of this, I've got one episode to go. And it's a great episode. I don't want, I mean, assuming you're talking about the final episode of the series. Uh, but by that, I'm saying like uh, El Camino, the two hour oh, movie oh. that they made afterwards. I finished the series, oh, but I don't, okay. I don't count it. 
No, El Camino was done. okay. But oh, no, the okay. last episode of that series, if you have not, all right, let us help you out. If you're at home and you're bored and you're thinking, I got to find something because there's only so many episodes of Dr. Phil that I can watch. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, Breaking Bad. It is great because it is very much one of these Page Turner style TV shows where it doesn't go, oh, wow, everything's happening next episode, but it gives you just enough. Yep. Uh, here's one. If you have Crave, now not everybody subscribes to Crave. In fact, I don't know many people who do subscribe to Crave. I do. Not that I have time to watch it all that much, and my wife keeps reminding me of that. If I remember because correctly, they actually have a 30-day 30 30 free trial that they they're do. doing right now. They do. So. And so th- this would be a perfect time, because there's a lot of stuff on there. There's The Sopranos, and there's Seinfeld, and there's Frasier, and there's tons of other good stuff on there. But the thing that's come on new on Crave that I highly recommend, highly recommend, is McMillions. It's a six-part series about, and most people don't even know this story, about back in, I can't remember what year now, the late 90s, maybe into the 2000s, but some years ago, the McDonald's Monopoly game got hacked. And I don't want to give anything away, but someone inside the operation of the game found a way to rip the game off and stole the winning million dollar winning pieces. So when, rather than them going out into the public, so the public never, despite the fact that they advertised that you could win a million dollars. At no point were you actually able to win. No, because it had already been hacked and ripped off and changed and altered before the tickets ever made it to the public. Now the million dollar prizes were claimed and it's a fantastic story of these people who were the winners, who were part of the scam in a sense, although in some cases they were kind of rubes who were taken for a ride. In other cases, they knew knowingly were, it's a fascinating McMillions if you're looking for that, but a couple others. Do you have, you don't belong to Amazon Prime, I'm guessing. I don't, but I've been dabbling with what service should I explore next? I've got Netflix. My girlfriend shares her Disney Plus with me. So, well, if you have, if you're a student, Amazon Prime, I think is only like eight bucks a month or something. It's super cheap. Well, I still have my email from school, so I can probably try and make it work. Well, if you're a student, there's a show on there with Al Pacino called Hunters, which is just new, just out for about a month. And it's about a group of, uh, it's in the 90s, set in the seventies. It's a group of Jews who are hunting all kinds of Nazis who somehow made it to the States after the war and are now living a normal life in the United States, it is, it's very hard to describe because it is dark at some points. It's very comical at other points, which sounds odd. It's kind of in some ways, almost Quentin Tarantino-ish sort of, but phenomenal twist at the end without saying anything about it. Just saying if you're in it, I think there's 10 episodes, phenomenal twist, but better call Saul. So Breaking Bad. On Netflix now, everyone has Netflix. Better Call Saul. If you've watched Breaking Bad, you must watch Better Call Saul. Amazing. My mom will tell you that because she would... My mom catches on to shows that I'm watching halfway through. She finished Better Call Saul before I finished Breaking Bad. And it is fantastic, as you say. It's great because it is the origin story of Saul, but also of Mike, right? Yes, and... Again, without giving anything away, if you've watched Better Call Saul, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you've not watched Better Call Saul, 
when you do watch it, you'll understand perhaps one of, and this, apparently this scene was improvised. I read this after because I looked it up. One of the all-time great television scenes is Saul talking about squat cobbler. (laughs) And and if you don't know, it's just, it's, I don't want to give anything away. And it's frankly way too difficult to try to explain what it is without sounding like a moron. Um, Yes, Better Call Saul. Uh, Another one on Netflix that you must watch. I hope people are taking notes, by the way, because, you know, we're helping you here. We're helping you get through this time of crisis. I am. Don't, Don't F with Cats is on Netflix and it's got a rude name, but it is the true story of, I can't think of the guy's name now. He was the Canadian guy who killed his male escort and then chopped up his body on on video and then started sending body parts to Stephen Harper and other members of the government and stuff. I think people will probably remember the story and he was a, a wannabe male porn star thing. But the amazing thing about this story, it's gross. I mean, the story is gross, but the the story in this thing is that the entire, he was caught basically. His life of crime ended because he did something nasty to a cat on video and all over the world, cat lovers who were online sprung into action to become online sleuths to find this guy all because he hurt a cat. If he had just hurt people not that I'm encouraging it, he would have got away with Luca Magnotti, was the guy's name. He would have got away with his actions in all likelihood, but these cat lovers became internet sleuths and found him on the other side of the world. It's a fascinating story. People of all kinds are weird. The Devil Next Door. Now, I, I seem to be just like giving a series of crime. <laughs> I don't know. Well, hey, that. if you're into true crime, okay, it's watch great. The, watch The Office if you want on Netflix. That's great. Watch Friends. Okay. When um, in doubt, The, the Devil Office Next will be Door, there. the story about John Demyanyuk, who was the accused Nazi prison death guard who had moved to Ohio, and then all of a sudden someone recognized him, and it led to, well, if you remember John Demyanyuk, if you're of a certain age, fascinating story. But, but, Ben, I'm telling you. Oh, and Mindhunter. Mindhunter, great series. Mindhunter's but great. There is a new show that has just arrived on Netflix. I talked to Rick Zamperin about it earlier today. He's one episode in. When Diana Weeks finished doing the news today, she walked into the news and I said, hey, I was just talking to Rick about this show. She goes, I'm one episode in. Everyone's one episode in. I'm one and a half episodes in. The show is called Tiger King. If you've seen Tiger King pop up on your Netflix, because it's one of those ones that they promote, it's the top one a lot of the time. (laughs) Tiger King may be the most insane show, real life show, And I'm going to try my best to tell you what it's about, although I'm not sure I can fully capture it because episode one was like jumping onto a car that was going 100 miles an hour. Episode two is like jumping off the car onto the Japanese bullet train. (laughs) So (laughs) it's basically a story about people who are involved in the exotic large cat Industry? Industry slash zoo world. And there's two of them that are the main focuses. One has a place, I think it's in Florida. Of course. And 
he has a very motley group of employees, including one who has her arm chewed off by a tiger. During the show? Oh, yes. Uh, and I'm, this is not a made-up show. They, they blur it, thankfully. Um, the other one is in the Carolinas, and that one involves what appears anyway, a, an episode and a half in, to involve large tigers, a cult, polygamy, <laughs> and a murder-for-hire plot against the woman who is free the tiger's position somewhere else in the States. It is... It is um, I've never heard of this, but you have me sold right there. If you are thinking, I re... I really need to find some time to fill, and I need to have something that at the end of this, I will forget about coronavirus entirely. This would be it. <laughs> because as difficult as things might be around here, probably you've never been in a murder for hire plot or had your arm gnawed off by a large cat. Yes. Which probably makes you feel better about yourself. Uh, Frank just wrote in and says, what makes you think that a number of people at home are bored and glued to the idiot box? There's more scope to maintaining someone's interest to curtail outward boredom. Frank, you're a better man than I am. <laughs> uh, yes, there, there are lots of things you can do, but, um, before you do them, watch Tiger King <laughs> and I'm not getting paid. We're not sponsored by Netflix. I just think that this is going to be the next thing, everyone, when they get back to work. And, or when you get back to the coffee shop and you want to be able to be part of the conversation, this is the show to watch. Because when you go back to work, everyone's going to say, did you watch Tiger King? Well, there you go. That's the one that, uh, that'll keep you in the loop. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.